You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Real Life Pullman. (laughs) That's not very much, that's not very fair. You left that hanging. Uh, How are you guys doing? It's been over 10 months since I've been here. Holy cow. My goodness. Um, Let's see here. We're talking about Lent. So there are two major seasons to the church calendar. Um, One of them being Advent and the other major season being Lent. Like a handful of years ago, we started celebrating Advent. It would be these four weeks that lead up to Christmas and the birth of Jesus. And it, it gets us prepared. It gets us ready. It helps us anticipate the coming of the Christ child. And I feel like doing that has really helped Christmas around here find like a better place in our spiritual consciousness. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah all right. I don't even know half the words I just used. Spiritual consciousness. What am I talking about? Um, but, uh, but we've also, we have this season where, um, we celebrate the empty tomb. We, 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 we try to get ourselves all like, we, we get closer and closer to resurrection day and resurrection day comes and we really try to get like all, like everybody all jazzed up because the tomb is empty. Woo! Yeah, yeah. So we, Marty does all these crazy things. We thought to ourselves, what if we just observed Lent like we do Advent? I just realized for the first time they rhyme. We got to do something with that. Um, what? Why don't, we, why don't we let the church calendar do its work for the resurrection season like we do for the Christmas season? And so Lent, for those of us that are, have not grown up in a liturgical tradition, any liturgical peeps in the house? Yeah, like, never mind, I won't, I won't drag you in, into any further conversation. But uh, yeah, so if you haven't, basically everybody else apparently in the room if you haven't partaken in Lent in a really serious way, it starts with Ash Wednesday. Lent is designed to connect us. You have, you have two parts of your human paradox. On one hand, you are a bearer of the image of God. You, you have a little piece of who God is in, in you that you go out and put on display into the world. Like on, on one hand, you are crowned with glory just under the angels, the psalmist says. In the other hand, you are nothing more than a dirt clod without God's life breathed into you. Does that make sense? Lent is designed to connect us to this dirt clod part of us. And so it starts with Ash Wednesday as you put these, if you're a part of those traditions, you put this, I was in, uh, I was in, I was in Florida so you already hate me a little bit this week, Um, on Ash Wednesday with a group of campus ministers and the priest, the Catholic campus minister father walked in. I don't know what they call him, Catholic campus minister father. And he walks in and he's like drenched in sweat because he has just been doing like ashes on everybody on campus. You know, uh, it was really fun to talk to him. It starts with this proclamation. You have come from dust and to dust you will return which sounds really morbid, especially when it falls on Valentine's Day, by the way. I tried to convince our team at FGCU, which is Florida Gulf Coast University. uh, Apparently, if they were there with me that night, they didn't have any dates that evening. I said, should we just like burn like all of our Valentines and use the ashes? They really liked that. It It starts with this really dark, 
morbid, but, but that's the point. Lent is, is a season that invites us to consider the following. What is it inside of us that needs to die so that when resurrection gets here, something new, something so much better can come to life in us? What is it that could be resurrected in our own life if we would let certain things die and take seven weeks to look out and search for these parts of who we are and these parts of our character that maybe we've kind of been stuffing in the corner or overlooking or just being distracted by because life is easy to do that. What, what if we had a season that just kind of purposely went, what's behind that curtain? And what's behind that curtain? And so Lent is a seven week introspection and looking inside, looking inwardly to find those places that need to be uh, redeemed. Tracking with me? Great. And so uh, one of the ways you can go about Lent is to take the final week of Jesus's life and take there's seven weeks of Lent and you can take one of those days on every, you can take one of those days for every one of your weeks of Lent. And so we're going to do that, which means today we need to talk about the first week of that final week of Christ's life, also known as Passion Week. Um, and that would be the triumphal entry. The irony is the last time I was here was Palm Sunday and I preached on the triumphal entry. So my joke has been, you guys need to get new material out here. But it went about as well in first service, that joke did. Okay, make a mental note. Don't use that in third service. Um, That was a joke too, but that didn't land either. Okay, so... uh, I want to talk about triumphal entry, but we have chatted before here in Pullman. We have chatted. Some of you like don't even know who I am. They're like, who is this bearded, tasseled Jew? <laughs> what kind of a church is this? We have chatted before about triumphal entry as it relates to imperial power. So in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Mark, they tell the story juxtaposing two different kings, two different rulers that are entering Jerusalem at the same time, maybe even the same day, but definitely the same week. Can anybody remember who comes in from the West? His name starts with a P. Pilate, good. And Pilate comes in from the West and he enters on a white stallion with with a legion of soldiers and a, and a, a, a banner and trumpets and pomp and couriers and heralds. And he comes in because he's trying to make a statement. And then from the East, Matthew and Mark have this Jewish rabbi named, very good, coming in riding on a, with a ragtag bunch of Talmudim. Like you, you get this witch kingdom, because there's only one, there's just one, just, just that's, that's up there. It's kind of hiding in the dark, but just one. There's just one kingdom. Which kingdom do you want? Because you don't get both. You don't get both. And that would, be a, that would still be a good sermon for today because I think there's still stuff to learn there, but I've now preached it twice here and we should find some new material, right? Yeah. All right. You guys are like, yeah, I've heard that one before. Luke, let's do Luke because Luke takes a totally different a- approach to the triumphal entry than Matthew or Mark, and so does John. But we're going to look at Luke today. Totally different way of looking at things. To do that, I need to talk about the corruption of the priesthood. And I'm going to attempt to do this as quickly as I ever have. Solomon, remember him? Good guy, good name. Made some mistakes. Good name, though. He, uh, he, 
he had a period of his rulership where they were trying to reestablish the priesthood. Who was the chief priest? Well, the chief priest, the head priest, I should say the head priest, had to come from the line of Aaron. Not our pastor Aaron, but the first one a long time ago, that Aaron, Moses' brother. And his descendants were the only people that could be the head priest, the chief priest. And, and so this priesthood had gotten lost. They had lost the lineage and had gotten corrupted. And they knew that they had two options that were descendants of Aaron. One of them, one of their names was Abiathar. Say Abiathar. The other one's name was Zadok. Say Zadok. Well, they drew straws. Zadok wins and Zadok becomes the high priest, the, the high priest. So his descendants, also known in the Hebrew as Zadokim, say Zadokim, you say in the English, Sadducee, okay? His descendants become the priesthood. Now that priesthood and that, all of Judaism, gets carted off to Babylon at the end of the Hebrew scriptures. And they come back from Babylonian captivity. And at that point in history, there were five families that had descended from Zadok. By the time Jesus shows up on the scene, there's now seven families descended from Zadok. And they're going to form the priestly family that can make a claim to the high priesthood, okay? We know them as the Sadducees. Now here's the deal. When you came back from Babylon, eventually Persia, well Persia is the one that lets you go back home. Persia got taken over by the Greeks. You went to war against the Greeks in the story of Hanukkah, which is like their, I'm really giving you a Cliff Notes version here. It's like their Independence Day. So in the story of Hanukkah, you defeat the Greeks miraculously, greatest military superpower on the planet at the time. And you defeated them, ragtag bunch of rebels. You defeated them, you got your country back for about a hundred years. When you got your country back, these rebels, also known as the zealots, gave the leadership of the country over to the priesthood because that was God's Levitical system. We're gonna let the priests lead. So they said, the zealots said, here you, they weren't zealots at that point, but you get the idea. The rebels said, here you go priesthood, lead away. And within 20 years, the priesthood had become completely corrupt. What I mean by completely corrupt is completely Hellenistic, completely Greek. Josephus tells us that there were not enough priests to hold services in the temple on Shabbat because they were all at the naked mud wrestling. That's the equivalent, yes, for all of you that went, oh, that's weird. Yeah, it would be. That would be like us not being able to have church anywhere in the country because we're all busy watching Sunday football. Nude Sunday football. <laughs> Somebody pointed out the lingerie bowl. <laughs> anyway, it would be, that would not be a good thing if that were the case. Like this is a corrupt priesthood. And so there was a whole other group that broke away the Pharisees rejected this corrupt temple system and they went up north and Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along. In fact, the Sadducees, the chief priests, when you read in your gospels, the chief priests, you need to read literally, not like, like, like that's a funny metaphor. They, they had a corrupt Jewish mafia. The temple guard was not a bunch of Jews with swords. It was it was a bunch of black guys in suits and sunglasses that show up at your door. It was, a, it was a hit squad. You had a corrupt Sanhedrin that would meet in the house of the high priest, 
make a bunch of decisions, and then when the formal Sanhedrin met, they would just ratify what the informal Sanhedrin said, because if he didn't, you got killed. The high priesthood was completely corrupt. Judaism today in the Talmud and the Mishnah will talk about the booths of Ananus. Say booths, not booths, booths of Ananus. You say Anus in the English, okay? And the booths of Anus were so corrupt that Judaism went, ugh. And so when Jesus, if you would do me a really big favor, Stop saying that the Pharisees and the Sadducees killed Jesus, because it's just not true. A, the Jews most certainly didn't kill Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't kill Jesus. Just the Sadducees killed Jesus. To, give, to put that in perspective, Jesus spends three years with the Pharisees, and they try to save his life twice. Jesus spends one week with the Sadducees and gets himself killed. Jesus spends three years with the Pharisees. They try to save his life two times. He spends one week with the corrupt mafia confronting religious corruption. Here's another example. Uh, if you were to come to Israel with me this summer, and I would love it if you would, because I need about 15 more people, and so does Aaron, so just pick your favorite and go with them. Uh, mine's just a lot more expensive, but a lot longer, and we're gonna do Turkey and Israel. He's just going to Turkey, so, you know, whatever. But if you come to Israel, it's a total joke. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, if you come to Israel, we'll take you to a house, either one, Aaron or I, we'll take you to a house where it's a, it's a high priestly home. We don't know if it's the high priest home. I happen to think it is, but nevertheless, doesn't really matter. I'm not the scholar. Uh, we'll take you to a home where we uncovered 17 bedrooms and 12 bathrooms. That's impressive in, by today's standards. That was really impressive by their standards. They had a wine cellar in which we found the whole wine cellar was full of wine bottles. Each wine bottle, somewhere in the equivalent to six to $10,000 a piece. This would be the equivalent of Thad pulling up to church every Sunday in a new Corvette just with a new color. You'd be like, oh, I like that color this week, Thad. Yeah, Thad really likes this idea. Like, it'd be awesome, right? No, you would, you would, you, this is not cool. But God didn't give you another option. God gave you how many temples? Not a trick question. One temple. You couldn't just leave and go to another temple like you can in our world. Well, I don't like the church. I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. In their world, you only had one. As corrupt as the leadership might be, you had no other options. And so there was this corruption that the people just despised and hated. And Jesus goes in on his final week and he knows that he's going in to die because he knows that he's going to, to confront religious corrupt power. So let's look at this triumphal entry, having that context now in mind. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem and as he approached Bet Pagai, say Bet Pagai, this is fun to say. We always say Beth Page, but Beit Pai and Bet Chani, say Beit Chani, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Because it's the equivalent of basically stealing a car. It'd be like me telling one of my college students, like, you know, go into Pullman, you're going to find a Civic there with the keys in it, just bring it to me. Yeah. And if anyone says, hey, what are you doing with my Civic? Just say, Marty needs it. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are laughing now, it's good. Okay, next, let's go to the next slide. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt and its owner asked them, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. What in the world is going on? Jesus has been walking around his whole ministry, hundreds, thousands of miles covered on his feet. And now three quarters of a mile away from Jerusalem, he's tired. Go get me a ride, he says. No, Jesus is a good Jewish rabbi and good Jewish rabbis are always making commentary on something that can be found in the text. And so as every good Jewish rabbi, he's teaching on something. This happens to be Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9, coming up here on the screen. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. This was written centuries before Jesus. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, see if it's a Westerner, a Westerner is going to go to the top of the Mount of Olives, grab, grab a megaphone and say, hey everybody, I'd like you to know that I am the king. Here's the reason why I'm the king. I'm running on this fantastic political campaign platform of, never mind. Um, that wasn't going to end anywhere good. Uh, and an Easterner doesn't do that. An Easterner chooses to work through pictures and metaphors. And so Jesus simply hints at Zechariah 9, and it's a rabbi mic drop. And the people catch it. Watch Luke 19. They understand. As they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, like you do. Like, next time I come to church, I want you all out there, like, throwing your coats, like, for me to drive over as I come. No, don't do that, please. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God. What are we told in the other gospels that they're holding? Palm fronds. Why palm fronds? Let's finish reading. Uh, to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Have we heard that phrase before, by the way? Glory to God in the highest. Shows up at Christmas. It's the same because we said that Jesus was born around the time of Sukkot. You see, Zechariah, the same prophet that Jesus is referencing by jumping on a donkey, is the same prophet who ends at the end of the prophecy in Zechariah 14 by describing this vision of all the nations streaming to the temple to celebrate the festival of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. And what you do when you come to celebrate Sukkot is guess what you wave in your hands? Palm fronds. You see the people catch it. There's no doubt in their mind. They catch it immediately. Jesus jumps on a donkey and I thought, you're probably sitting there going, I thought it was Passover time. It is Passover time, but Jesus jumps on a donkey and they're ready to go. They're like, somebody grab the palm fronds. Because I know Zechariah and I know how the story ends. And so they start singing Sukkot hymns. We said that Jesus was born at Sukkot and the angels come singing Sukkot hymns, the hymns you sing at Sukkot. Glory to God in the highest. That's what they sang in the temple during Sukkot. Glory to God in the highest. Peace in heaven. And they start singing these Sukkot songs, waving their palm fronds. We get it, Jesus, we get it. Yes, all right, keep going. Some of the Pharisees, the peroshim, in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your your disciples. 
I tell you, he, the, 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 the Pharisees are a little worked up. They're like, hey, A, they shouldn't be talking about you. Like, like if you literally throw your coats in the road, we're going to have a problem because you should not be worshiping me that way if I come to church. The Pharisees are like, you should not be doing this. You should not be. And A, you're going to cause a ruckus and the Romans aren't going to like this ruckus. You need to tell everybody to calm down and take your rightful seat. Jesus responds, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. That is a weird thing to say. I know that some of us have heard this story so many times that we're just like, oh yeah, the stones will cry out. And we kind of think like, if the people don't praise me, the very rocks on the side of the road will cry out. But that's not how a Jewish rabbi works. Some people have pointed out that Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which is still to this day, a massive graveyard. Thousands upon thousands of headstones. Some people have said, Jesus is saying the very graves will cry out to praise Jesus. Which very possibly could be it. We're getting a little bit more rabbinic, but if he's truly a good Jewish rabbi, he's gonna be talking about something in the text. And there's only one place in the Hebrew scriptures that talks about stones crying out because stones don't cry out. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's a weird image. And so there's only one place that stones cry out. It's in Habakkuk 2. I knew you were thinking it. You're like, Habakkuk, I got it up here. (laughs) Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. Okay, now wait a minute. As you come over the Mount of Olives, what can Jesus see? Anybody see? There's something right in front of him, Jerusalem, and right in front of you, the temple. Uh, If you've ever seen the famous picture of Jerusalem with the Dome of the Rock sitting right in front of you, the, the, uh, the mosque with the golden dome on the top of it. Uh, that's, that's the Mount of Olives. He, he comes over the Mount of Olives and he can see, everybody can just look and see, the temple's right there. It's less than a half mile away, the temple. And he quotes a passage that talks about somebody building their house on unjust gain. Well, who's doing that? The priesthood. The priesthood is building the entire temple system on unjust gain. Setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, Habakkuk said, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Jesus says to the Pharisees, I'm here to confront religious corruptive power. And if I, you can't stop what's going on here because everybody here has felt the weight of their corruption. So I, you, you can tell them to be quiet, but you cannot stop the thing that we're here to do, which is to confront the corruption. So let's keep walking, let's keep reading. As they approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Why is he weeping? I thought they got it. I thought they got it. He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Apparently they get it, but they don't get it. Like apparently the people there that day got it, but they didn't get it. Because he rounds the corner, he crosses the hill and he, said, he, he breaks down in tears and says, if you only knew, all of you, people in charge, people under the boot of corruption, imperial power gone crazy, if, if any of you only knew what would bring you peace, but you don't know, 
But now this is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. And they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus weeps and says, if only you knew what would bring you peace. If only you would recognize the kingdom of God when you see it, but you don't. Look at this, look at this passage from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Here's that passage. What are the very next verses that show up? On a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Jesus weeps and says, if only you knew what would bring you peace. But the only thing that will bring you peace is to put the chariots away, to put, put the war horses in the stalls. Like stop with all the fighting. Stop with all the my power, my power, my power, their power, remove their power, kick them out, put us in. Stop. Stop with all of your rightness. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah says, if only you would put all that stuff away and just trust in the Lord's provision, he would usher in a day where all the people would come and celebrate the festival of Sukkot at the temple. Jesus says, if only you knew what would bring you peace. I wonder if, I wonder if we know. To cap to capitalize on the season of Lent, I wonder if we know. I wonder if we get it, but we don't get it. I wonder if Jesus were to come over the hill that overlooks Pullman, any one of them. <laughs> I wonder if he were to come over the hill if he would weep as he considered the people of God that live here on the Palouse. Not just our church, but our church included. I wonder if he thought specifically about real life on the Palouse. I wonder if there are things I don't know if he would just weep because we're so horrible, but I wonder if there are things about us that he would say, if only you knew what would bring you peace. I, I think there are some things. I've watched our Facebook profiles. I think there are some things that Jesus would weep over. There are some things. Uh, this is the season of Lent. Now, I want to I wanna reflect on that before we close, but we need to uh, move towards the end of our service. So we're going to be passing buckets. Remember that you can put uh, your connection cards, your tithes and gifts and offerings in those buckets, and then we're going to pass out communion. Uh, and uh, if you're visiting with us, we have an open Eucharist table. That means if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your family. So you take some bread, you take some juice, you hold on to it, and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. But I want to... I wanna, Peel this open by wrestling with some implications here today. First implication, Lent, this is just a reminder. This is a reminder implication, a reminder of what Lent is designed to do. Lent is a season of reflection that invites us to consider what parts of us need to die so that something much better can come to life. The invitation of this season is to look inside your heart and ask yourself, are there any places where you get it, but you don't get it? 
You're, you're trying to build a kingdom. You think it's God's kingdom, but it's not. It's your kingdom. Or you're trying to build God's kingdom, but you're going to use your methods. You're going to do it in God's way. So as we look inside, here's a couple questions. Is it, it is often the case that we want the right things, but we want to acquire those things in the wrong way. It is often the case that we want the right things, but we want to acquire those things in the wrong way. Uh, I'm not gonna connect all the dots for us this morning, but I think over the last year and a half to two years, the church has shown that they're willing to try to get the right things in some questionable ways. But I will let you wrestle with that. At the end of all things, there will be only one kingdom remaining. If we pursue what we perceive to be the right kingdom using the wrong methods, we didn't have the right kingdom to begin with. As Westerners, we love destination. We love quantity. We like hard data. Rightness is objective. Amen? Problem is, for an Easterner, rightness is more about quality than it is about quantity. It's more about journey than it is destination. It's more about the means than it is the ends. I think as Westerners, we're willing to do a lot of things to get the right ends. And I think the Jewish world of the Bible says, actually, if you just focus on the right means, you always get the right ends. Is there anything in our walk that we're willing to use questionable means because we're pretty sure we've got the right ends. Uh, next implication. What kinds of things could come to life in you this resurrection season if we put to death our desire for worldly power, worldly comfort, and worldly privilege? If you were to look inside your heart this resurrection season, what kind of things could be born if you would be willing to confront those deep-seated idolatrous desires for worldly comfort, worldly power, worldly security, worldly privilege? I wonder what kind of things could come to life. I think this go we live in a culture that's unbelievably bifurcated like two sides to everything, theologically, politically, culturally, socially, you name it. We love to put one side against another side. We are more divided today on every level imaginable than you could, than I could have ever thought we could have become five years ago. But it's the world that we live in. If there's ever gonna be a kingdom that God's going to build, it's not gonna be by getting which, by siding with the right team on any of these issues. It's gonna become like, it's going to be about starting a new kind of a humanity that knows how to listen, knows how to love, knows how to have a conversation and a dialogue and understand that underneath it all, we're really the same. I have watched my progressive friends this year show their true desires and it has not been something that I have found attractive. I have conservative friends that have shown their true desires this year and I have not found it attractive. What I want to be a part of Myself, I have to start with myself, is being willing to have a whole new conversation that's built a whole lot more on love and grace and mercy and compassion and peace, wholeness, than it is about rightness. 
So we hold in our hands the way, bread and juice. We hold in our hands. This is this, the table that we come to gather at is a lot of things. This Eucharist table is a lot of things. But one of the things that it is, is a model for us. Jesus showed us how, how to bring kingdom. You bring it, Jesus said, by dying to yourself. The person who wants to save his life must lose it. Stop trying to preserve it. Stop trying to secure it. He showed us how to go about. This table isn't just about something that Jesus did so that we wouldn't have to. This table is also about doing things the way that Jesus did it because that's how kingdom shows up. Jesus came over the hill and the triumphal entry and the triumph was not going to be through conquest. The triumph was going to come through death. That's a different kind of triumph. What are all the places in your life that you are afraid to triumph by death? Not literal death, unless that's what God calls us to, but a spiritual, metaphorical laying down of our lives for the other person. That night, Jesus took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body given for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. And later on in that meal, he took a cup. He passed it amongst his disciples. He said, this is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus. Father God, my, my prayer this morning is twofold. On one hand, God, I, I pray that you would, that there was a song we sang earlier this morning. It said, break my heart for what breaks yours. And as I read stories about you coming into Jerusalem, the great holy city, and you breaking down into tears because your people get it, but they don't get it. I pray, God, that in this Lenten season, you would show us the things that break your heart and that our hearts would be broken as well. Father God, my other prayer would be that you would really instill upon us and impress upon us the effectiveness of your methods the effectiveness of your ways. You told us in Isaiah that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And that passage comes in the context of forgiving enemies. Come, Isaiah said, and he will forgive you because his ways are not your ways. God, thank you for forgiving us. I pray that we would believe that same method is true for us as well that your method of laying down your life to bring wholeness to other people's brokenness would be the same methods that you would call us to and that we would believe in, we would trust in those methods. God, if there's anything that's not in line with that, if there's anything that gets in the way of us being more like you, I pray that you would weed those things out. I pray that this Lenten season would bring those things to life Bring those things to light so that we could put them to death. So that a whole new thing could come to life in us this resurrection season. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you for his forgiveness. And we pray all these things in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.